You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkins. Hello again, Life Group Leaders. Welcome to another week of, of the Life Group Leader Podcast at Brentwood Baptist Church. But we are glad to be here again, excited for another week of unpacking the Transforming Truths curriculum. And can you believe it? It's the very last one. Can I get a applause, Paul? Yeah, 13 chapters down. It's amazing. 13 chapters, which means we've done 13. This will be our 13th podcast, which is hard to believe, but uh, it's been great. It's been fun, and we hopeful hopeful that it's been helpful to you. Um, as you have, uh, been preparing, uh, your, your lessons each week for your life group. And hopefully, you know, you received maybe a nugget or two each week that may have been helpful to you. We, we think that that's true with some of the remarks and comments we've received over the last few months have indicated that. So we do want to continue this, uh, actually. And as we move into our, another, uh, 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 curriculum, which will launch the 23rd of April, we plan to continue to do this still. So looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Yeah, living scent. We'll have a good time with it. Uh, a few things just to let you know about. Obviously, last Saturday was Engage Middle Tennessee. It was an awesome day. We had a lot of fun, a lot of uh, mobilization of people, life groups serving together, uh, we had things happening on, on the campus at Brentwood Baptist Church. And man, I tell you, it was just a great day of service and mission and fellowship. And if you participated, I want to say thank you for the work that you did and for uh, mobilizing your life group to be part of that day. It, uh, you know, it's going to bear fruit. And some of you were able to see that fruit uh, actually on Saturday last Saturday and others of you may, we may see it in two years from now, but whatever the case, we know that God is sovereign over all of it and he can use it for his glory. So I'm, I'm grateful for your participation in Engage Middle Tennessee. And it's cool to see all the campuses on mission together like that. It's a, it's a neat thing, the inter-campus cooperation. That's right. That's always a, a great thing to be a part of. So the Living Scent Roundtables will begin next week, April the 19th, Wednesday night. And we are so looking forward to that. Um, the Living Scent curriculum is beginning this Sunday. And so therefore, we want to be prepared. And hopefully, you'll want to be a part of that. We're going to be doing some roundtable discussions uh, around the curriculum on Wednesday nights. And we're going to begin, I think, what time, Paul? 6, 6.15-ish? Yeah, somewhere in there. Uh, right. Some people come late, so that's okay. Not not a problem. We'll get cranked up probably closer to 6.15, yeah. but you come when you can, and whenever you come, I think you're going to get something out of it. We're actually going to meet in room 2140A. I believe that's correct. We'll send out an email hopefully in the next uh, uh, day or so to our, or maybe you've received an email so far, but... Uh, to remind you about when that is or where that is. So that'll begin the 19th of April. All right, well, let's start now and then begin talking about this last lesson in the Transforming Truths curriculum. And again, I hope that these these studies have been helpful to you personally as a leader, but also they've been helpful to your life group uh, members as well, your participants as well. 
theology is incredibly important. And, um, and I hope that this has been, um, fruitful, a fruitful study for you and your class in your life group. But this particular week, uh, lesson 13 is talking about eternity. It's talking about last things. And the focal passage that we're going to be taking a look at today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 through 58. And so what I want to do is I just want to read it really quickly. And then we'll, uh, we'll have a little bit discussion and we'll highlight a few things and, um, and, and go from there. So, uh, if you want to, you can follow along as I read, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter. But not if you're 15. driving. What'd you say? But not if you're driving. Not if you're driving. Absolutely. <laughs> um, here we go. Brothers, I'll tell you this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this in, for this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Mm-hmm. So we start off here talking about uh, referencing, Paul is referencing here in 1 Corinthians about the second coming of Christ. And we see that, and we kind of know that, number one, because he's talking about, begin, he's talking about the last trumpet, right? He's talking about the trumpet call of God. And some of you are familiar with 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, where Paul himself is writing to the Thessalonians. He's talking about the coming of Christ and how the Lord will come and he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. He says the dead in Christ will rise, and those who are still alive will be caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air, uh, and they will be with him forever. And so, therefore, comfort each other with these words, he says to the Thessalonian church. Uh, so he's talking about this trumpet call. We're talking about this return of Christ in a majestic, powerful way. And if you really think about it, it's interesting. Uh, we, we celebrated um, uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, this weekend and it, uh, you know, the, the, the humble entry of our Lord into, into Jerusalem and riding on a donkey and just this posture of a humble servant as, as this king, this humble king entering into, uh, this city. And, uh, obviously that wasn't the way in which many Jews of the time would figure that the king of kings would, would come in and, 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 and rule. Uh, but this second coming is very much about a coming of power and majesty. And everyone is going to know it's not necessarily a humble entry. It's a very, it's a powerful entry, uh, it, back, uh, into the world in which he's created. Uh, so we're talking about this, uh, this return of Christ. But he, but, uh, Paul, here is talking about, he talks, he uses some words that are very interesting. He's talking about this, 
incorruptibility or incorruptible and this idea of corruptible. So, Paul, talk to us a little bit about those things and, and how they're referenced perhaps in the context of this verse uh, that we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul uses it throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, and again a couple times in our text. Peter also uses the word uh, in 1 Peter one uh, eighteen and 23 as well. So knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like um, like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, uh, and then again in verse 23, for you have been born again, not of a seed which is corruptible, but incorruptible, that is through the living and enduring word of God. So we, we have the immortality and the enduring self and perfect body. So our soul and spirit, however you want to stand that from, understand that from the human, humanity chapter we did, but whether you're dichotomist or trichotomist, those immaterial parts of us are enduring now, but our bodies are decaying. Uh, we, assuming Christ doesn't return in our lifetime, we will die. Uh, the whole universe is decaying and that'll continue. But on Christ's return here, well, now everything is going to be raised up incorruptible so that it will, it will endure. I don't know about you, Paul, but I feel my mortality every single day that I get up out of the bed. Do you? That's right. Yes. <laughs> I sure do. But more it's than the, I care to admit. More than you care to admit. But I tell you, it's such a, um, Gosh, an amazing hope that we have to know that one day we will receive a new body um, that is incorruptible and will be perfect, a resurrection body. And we can talk about that here in a few more minutes. Right from the beginning, though, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing about, he says something very interesting. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit corruption. Talk to us a little bit about that. That is an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, well, the reason it leapt out to me is because of how you just ended the, the last little part there, is that we look forward to having incorruptible bodies that endure. Well, the reason we have hope in those bodies is because we'll be in perfect communion and relationship with the triune Godhead in an eternal kingdom of love, joy, and peace. But I think the Bible is clear that everyone will be raised, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And the unrighteous are going to have bodies that don't decay either, that are going to endure. The problem is they're going to be eternally separated from that Godhead. So it just struck me that those stuck in the flesh and the blood, uh, which I take to be still trapped in their sin, kind of like how he closes there in verse 56, uh, that they're going to have a incorruptible body too, but it's going to be separated from the true vine and the true king. And so if you continue on just with this little section of scripture that we've talked about here, you know, you come down to verse 54, end of 54, and then a particularly verse 55 of this chapter, uh, Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. And then he says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's almost like that he's like taunting death, Paul. Doesn't it feel that way to you? Yeah, I think I think he is. And I think we get the passage in Peter that talks about uh, what Christ was doing during the three days when he was when his body was dead before the resurrection. And um, some say he was preaching to the. Uh, Old Testament saints or those in the holding place, other uh, New Testament scholars would say that he was actually there taunting 
he was actually there taunting the demons uh, and those who tried to steal humanity away, saying death has been overcome, sin has been overcome, there's victory. Uh, so I think of first, I think of that. And the second, I think of the contrast of what you opened with today about Jesus riding in on a donkey with it being Palm Sunday and then overcoming death through his death. And that drove me to Revelation 5, where you see Christ's second return. And like you were saying, just the infinite chasm of the differences between Jesus's first entrance and his second. So he comes as a baby, radically dependent on Joseph and Mary. And then he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, very humble, bringing peace. But then when he comes in Revelation 5, it is much different. Uh, So I'll just pick out bits and pieces of it. So we see a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open it or even to look in it. Uh, And so John begins crying because there's nobody worthy. And then one of the elders says to John, stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. So this would be the entrance on the donkey. Standing between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people. By God, or you redeem people for God, by your blood, from every tribe and language and people and nation, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And so it's just incredible to think of him riding in on a donkey. That gives me chills. Yeah, with, with I mean, people faithfully putting down palm branches, uh, referencing the old, the really the intertestamental period about uh, the, the victories of the Maccabees and those sort of people. So the palm branches will represent victory and release. But still, riding in on a donkey versus coming in and taking the scroll out of the hand of the Father and these angels and creatures and angels singing and, Trump is blaring. It's just it's insane. I'm looking at Paul right now. He's got this 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 sheepish smile on his <laughs> face as he's <laughs> contemplating that whole thing. Yeah. It's pretty cool to see. Man, I tell you, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Paul is taunting death because he understands exactly what has happened. What has happened? The ultimate enemy of humanity, sin and death, has been defeated mm. because of Christ. And uh, it's a victorious celebration of that, and, and and if anything, that should give us joy, joy and 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 peace and happiness in our own lives. He says, verse fifty six. Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse fifty eight. He, because of all this, right. Uh, he sums it up. Therefore, brothers, because of these things, right? Therefore, dear brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul, mm-hmm. talk to us about the so what. 
right? He kind of gives us so what? Because of these yeah. things, do this. Yeah. So death, um, death looks like the end. Uh, we think of Paul elsewhere saying, if there is no resurrection, then eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow you die. And that sort of mentality. And what he's getting at here in Corinthians is that we have eternal life. Our works now and the kingdom expansion we do now, the good works we do for uh, the creatures of God, uh, other people, whether they be believers or not, all of that counts and has value because we're pointing to Christ who we're going to be eternally in relationship with forever. And the idea of death as a weapon against us with um, Satan um, accusing us before God and... Um, you know, getting us attached to things uh, to an extent that's unhealthy to the point of idolatry. And Paul's saying death is overcome. So that's not it's not a weapon to be used against you anymore. They Because of the resurrection, we see the risen Christ. We know that we'll rise. So we don't need to be afraid of it. Uh, when we go into the dark and the scary places, we don't need to be afraid of it. Because, because of the resurrection, we know that we have the promise of resurrection for ourselves. So it lets Christians live with a boldness that I don't think anyone else can live with um, in any other system of belief or whatever it may be. And then sort of a corollary, so what, is the way we deal with death as Christians. Um, we all have loss and we all miss the individual. But it's interesting in the Bible that generally there's a time given, in the Old Testament I'm thinking of particularly, there's a time given for mourning. It's like mourn uh, 30 days and then back on with life. And I, I think that takes on a new reality for New Testament believers when we think in terms of this resurrection. So that the people that we have lost, um, again, we mourn missing them and not being with them anymore. But we celebrate the promise that they have here uh, that we'll all be raised again to be in relationship with the Father. So so death is such a, um, it's just such a weapon against people being bold and responding to their calling. And Paul is just wiping that out and saying, this can't be used against you anymore because now, you, now you're with Christ and, and we have the promise of immortality through the, through the resurrection of the physical body. You know, as we, as we think about this chapter, um, talking about eternity, inevitably one of the things that we talk about is end-time theology, right? We talk about how it's all going to come down. You know, and the, and, and, you know, oftentimes, if you're not, if you're not careful enough, if you're as a group leader, you'll say to your group, Hey guys, what do you want to study now? And uh, what are you interested in learning about? And inevitably you're going to get Revelation, you know, let's go study the book of Revelation. And I, and I did that at the end of a focus study, apologetics focus study on common objections to the faith. And I said, all right, we're done. What do you guys want to do next? Sure enough, it was Revelation. It was Revelation. It's always interesting <laughs> right. in the book of Revelation because there's so much mystery surrounding it all, you know. Um, and there's so many different models. There's so many different beliefs around how it's all going to come down. Um, the, the details of, of the various millennial models. And so, um, Paul, do this for us. Give us a quick breakdown, if you would, of the various models that are pretty common in the church today, in the Protestant church particularly today and then talk to us about the um maybe um some some thoughts that we might need to consider as leaders as we're teaching these particular models can you do that yeah i don't know if i can do it well i can do something though right. um first i think that it can be disturbing to 
people to hear that we don't know a thing, especially something as critical as these end times and millennial kingdom understandings. Uh, but I think in the end, it's a great blessing and a great grace of God that God doesn't impose a particular um, thing like this on someone that's not necessary for their faith. So in other words, regardless of what you think of the end times outside of the physical resurrection of the body, that has to be a part of it. But beyond that being a part of it in the Christ returning, that it's really not essential to your salvation and justification or even your sanctification in some ways. Uh, how you understand the millennial kingdom. And I think that's a grace of God to appease in some sense the diversity of the church. And I'm going to argue it's a good thing at the end. So the models, um, try not to belabor them. The most difficult one, or the one with the most stuff in it, let's say that way, is predispensational premillennialism. I think your book calls it dispensationalism. And this is actually probably the um the most common view in the modern evangelical church this would be the one with how lindsay and the left behind series sort of books it's more the new kid on the block as far as views of the millennial kingdom go but i think it's the most prominent and what it says is that christ will return at some point and rapture the church away and um and so there'll be there'll be a seven a literal seven-year tribulation period that's tied in from daniel 70 weeks so we still haven't experienced week 70 yet That'll come in the future. It'll be seven literal years. And Christ will either rapture his church before, in the middle, or after that. All right? So we're in the church age now. Christ returns. And then there's a tribulation. Um, and then Christ comes, locks up the Antichrist, locks up the beast. And then we have a literal thousand-year kingdom on earth. At which time, at the end of that thousand years, and we roll with Christ in those years, um, Israel's still distinct on this view from the uh, New Testament believing church. They're redeemed, but they're still distinct as an ethnic people there. Uh, so at the end of this thousand year period, Christ will release Satan. It's, it looks like it's a very short releasing, but somehow he gathers up this army again and, um, and comes up against Christ one last time. And then Christ lays it all down, great white throne judgment, and then into the eternal kingdom for those who are believers and eternal separation for those who are not. So you have a literal seven-year tribulation period, and you have the church being raptured at some point within that, and then you have a literal thousand-year kingdom. So classical premillennialism would be the view that we are in the church age now, and generally the tribulation is the same as the church age. So we're experiencing all those things now. And so all of those um, woes and uh, curses and plagues in Revelation are symbols of what we endure now as a corrupt and falling fallen people waiting on the return of Christ. Christ will come back and establish a literal kingdom of God, a millennial kingdom, but it may be a thousand years, maybe 10,000, just some big number of years. At the end of that, Satan will be loosed, and then Christ will end it all, just as before. So the big differences are, there's not a literal seven-year tribulation period, and there is no uh, rapture, necessarily, on this view. Postmillennialism is becoming uh, prevalent in modern times. Uh, and this is to say that Christ will return to a kingdom that has already been established. So notice we had pre on the first two, now we have post. What that means is either Christ is going to return before the millennial kingdom or Christ is going to turn after the millennial kingdom. So on post-millennialism, Christ returns to a kingdom that's already been established. And the way it's established is that the Christian faith continues to progress and dominate and subsume culture 
until at some point the world is Christianized. And so the world gets Christianized and Christ returns to a believing world um, and then establishes his throne, judgment, and, and so forth. And then lastly, amillennialism, ah being the negation. So there just is no millennial kingdom that we just live now. We try to expand the kingdom as best we can, live faithfully to God. And at some point um, down the road, there will be one return of Christ. And at that point, Christ will judge everyone and then you have the eternal kingdom and then eternal separation. So on predispensational premillennialism, there's usually two and a half returns of Christ. There's a half return to rapture the church. There's a full return to establish the kingdom. And there's a final return for the eternal kingdom. Classical premillennialism, there's two. Christ returns to establish a literal kingdom and then looses Satan and then returns again to end it all. Postmillennialism, there's one return of Christ and that's at the end of time. In all millennialism, there's one return of Christ, and that's at the end of time. Mm. All right, so there's some kind of a, a brief breakdown. Thank you, Paul, <laughs> for that. So a brief breakdown of some of the common views in the church today that are oftentimes taught in the church. And, um, you know, obviously a, a lot of people in the church today have a lot of interest in end times and eschatology. They want to know the nitty-gritty details, right? And um, and so, Paul, what are your thoughts in terms of advice for people, uh, for life group leaders uh, potentially, if they want to maybe even um, outline the various views that are common in the church today in their lesson this for this week? Uh, and then maybe they wanted to use these these four views that you touched on here. What would be the best way in your mind to teach those, and what what are some some things to be uh, careful about as you're teaching them? And you can find some more description of what I described on the adults.journey on page under the curriculum with the teacher help for this week. I go through these in a little more detail. Then, of course, there's plenty of information online. Just be careful where you're going if you're doing general searches for this. So I'll share with you the way I do it is I like to present all of them because I think the way it's usually said is the Bible is underdetermined. The Bible doesn't explain to us fully which of these models fits, because I think all of these models fit uh, the text of Scripture. It depends on how you understand the genre, which parts of Revelation are symbolism, whether there's one or multiple returns of Christ. And all those decisions are going to influence your understanding of the text um, as, as much as we try to avoid that. And so I like to present all all of the views. I'm honest with where I stand I'm today. It may be different if you ask me in two weeks, but today I'm a classical premillennialist. Uh, so I share where I am, but I say that all of them fit the text. Now, usually somebody is um, concerned that we don't know the answer to this thing. And this is where I really think we can push the practical side of things and talk about God's grace in creating the diverse and unique church to do his one purpose and one will of kingdom expansion. And so I usually say to them, um, I challenge them to think about what their motivations would be. So if the point of the Christian life is that we give glory to God in our worship and then that we expand the kingdom through our evangelism, then what would be the motivations on each of these views? So for, for a dispensationalist and for a classical premillennialist, we know that Christ will return at some point. And then at that point, there's going to be a kingdom where people are going to be separated and then Christ will return and there'll be a final judgment. 
And what we want are people participating in that millennial kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So our motivation for living the Christian life and for evangelizing is to get as many people into that millennial kingdom as we can possibly get into it. Because um, we know what's coming if you're not in that kingdom is going to be eternal separation and suffering. Uh, so big motivation for evangelism. The post-millennialist says that we need to be Christianizing the world now, that everything will get progressively better and more Christian as time goes on. Uh, so you get a lot of them big into uh, social justice, charity movements, which is great for evangelistic purposes and just generally we're mandated to do it in the text. But your, your motivation for evangelism is that you are literally creating the kingdom to which Jesus Christ would res- will return. And so you're going to have this kingdom ready for Christ when he returns just to rule over it. And that can be a strong impetus for evangelism for many, many people, that we need to get this thing ready for our Savior. And then the amillennialist who denies an actual millennial kingdom. But, I mean, again, just like all the views, what do they have in common? They have a final judgment. And so they say eternal separation is a very real thing. So we don't know when Christ, I mean, our text says it's going to be like a, like a flash just in a moment. We don't know when that's going to happen. And so we need to be motivated to evangelize, to expand the kingdom, because it could happen tomorrow, next year, 100 years, or 20 billion years, who knows. But the point is, like Paul ends here, uh, we have the call to live the Christian life and expand the kingdom. And so I think you get three different motivations that all end on the same mission, to evangelize the lost and the unchurched. But there may be different uh, base fundamental reasons for doing it. And I think that's a great thing for God to say, I'm going to use these diverse people that disagree on all sorts of things to all do the same thing, mm-hmm. even if they do it for different reasons. I think it's a really cool thing that God does. Yeah. And I think as you're teaching it, uh, it's important not to be too dogmatic where scripture is not dogmatic, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and so therefore I, I like what Paul said, you know, if you choose to unpack some of these various views, make sure you do so in a, in a in a way where you present all of them. And absolutely, if you feel led to do it, you know, share about where you stand and why. But I don't know if it would necessarily be appropriate to say you need to believe the way I believe yeah. about this issue. And, and they all have pros and cons. Right. So just be honest about those yeah, people. Absolutely. Sometimes we have a tendency to whitewash our own view, myself included. And so we always got to be on guard against that. That's right. Okay, so um, that might be something you want to think about. Uh, might be a good a good exercise to uh, to unpack. And you know, I, I would I've been a part of groups before that have man. There's some people that really really have some really passionate views about these things. You know what I mean? And and they have and there's a lot of emotion uh, attached to their particular belief about it. And and you know i've been i've i've seen groups that have that have taught in times theology before and given some thoughts on some things and then they 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 kind of you know kind of give an emotional response like no that's not right or or whatever and um so you know yeah and one beauty of one beauty of doing it this way is that if you do teach all the models the main points of scripture just fall out on their own and so the main points of Scripture are what everybody agrees on, regardless of what model you're in. And that's that there will be a physical resurrection at the end of time, that there will be a return of Jesus Christ, that there will be a judgment. And all of these things become more and more highlighted because each of these four models all agrees on those points. And I think that's always a fun thing to do with people. And that's the most important part, part right. of it all. And, yeah, that, that's, and that's the hope we have. <laughs> the hope isn't that you're a dispensationalist. The hope is that we all agree 
there's going to be a return of Christ to, to rule his kingdom. That's and right. we'll be a part of it. That's, that's exactly right. All right. Well, so what's at stake here? Uh, as we, as we close down this particular podcast, um, you know, I think maybe you've mentioned it, but what, what are some, some, maybe some takeaways or some, some, for you, Paul, one of the main things to, that if, if our people know this at the end of the lesson this week, uh, that's a win. Yeah. Two big things for me. One is that as believers, we fear only the Lord. We don't fear death. That, that death has been swallowed up. Death has no sting. Death has no victory. Such a key part of this text. So that we can live with a freedom and a liberty that other people don't have. And it's all grounded in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then from that, we have a hope that other people don't have. Uh, we have the hope that that there really isn't anything mundane and worthless because immortality is real and and we can create subjective meaning people atheists do it all the time so i take care of my family or i work on my career but if all of it's perishable and the sun's either going to blow up and burn everything or the sun's going to burn out and and everything's going to freeze then what's the point of your good career or your family it'll all be dust in a in a minor footnote to a footnote to a footnote in history But the Christian says, no, immortality is a real thing. What you do now matters with eternal cosmic consequences in the battle of good and evil uh, between sin and death and the victory that Christ has over it. So it lets us live with a meaning and a purpose um, and a a readiness um, that other people don't have access to. And I think that's a real blessing for the believer. So hope and fear. Fear we don't have, hope we got mountains of it. Hope and fear. And you know, Paul, my goodness, he, he speaks to that right here. What was it, verse 58 down mm-hmm. here? Um, if I've got in front of me right here. Hold on. Um, Therefore, be steadfast, right? Yeah. Be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what you're talking, you're speaking yeah. to, Paul. Yeah. Um, that very thing. So it's a good word. Thanks. So it lets us live uh, ethically. So if we're done wrong, we we deal with it. We handle it with grace. We handle it with forgiveness because we know that we have immortality and eternal relationship with the triune Godhead so that nothing can should sway us and move us. And what we do matters. It matters a great deal. Well, hey, this has been a, a good podcast, and uh, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm, we're excited for this week again, and we pray that it's a, uh, uh, a fantastic uh, lesson and some great conversation that comes up in, in your group. And, and know, as always, we're praying for you, and we hope that um, that you are blessed. And we're praying for your preparation also, because we know that uh, you don't take that for granted, and so. Um, we pray that that's an enriching, fruitful time for you as you get ready to share this, uh, this, these scriptures and this lesson with your people. Paul, anything else? Nope. All right. <laughs> I haven't tried that ending yet. I figured I'd try something All right. new. I'm always asking that. He never calls it anything profound. No. Not usually. Anyway, all right. Well, thank you. And I've already we'll, spent all my credit here. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday. <laughs>